0: Other being said, if this is your first time here, welcome. Uh, We are um, on our journey through Daniel. So um, if you haven't gone through the book of Daniel before, it is an extremely interesting book. There is a lot of stuff packed into this short uh, 12 chapters that we're going to be going through over the next few weeks. Now, one of the things that's always been really, really interesting as you kind of go through this is that there's a lot of different themes and things that you can kind of pull out. Um, which we saw kind of the ending to one theme last week in Daniel chapter 4. In fact, if everything stopped in Daniel chapter 4, if that was the entire book, this would be the most encouraging and incredible book like you could read. It would have been amazing if you just think about it. It's like this really cool story of these, these slaves that are being conquered, that they go to exile, and then through their faithfulness and obedience, God raises them up in places of, in honor, And then you have this cool redemptive story of King Nebuchadnezzar, who is this Babylonian pagan king with pagan gods who God uses through Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to bring this ultimate, like, redemptive story to him and for him to confess that, you know, this God is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. It's such an amazing thing. It's so great. But that's not where the book of Daniel ends. Um, In fact, where we are now in chapter 5 we do come to a time jump. And a lot has changed in a couple different ways, specifically historically. So King Nebuchadnezzar, he actually dies in around the year 561, 562 BC. And this story picks up after rule changes a few times. So he has a couple sons that kind of take on kingship. Some are killed, some die naturally. But at this point in time, there is a king, and I've practiced this name before, but I know I'm going to say it wrong. Uh, now, Bonidas, Bonidus, Nabonidus. That's what I'm going to go with. King Nabonidus, he actually becomes king during this time with Belshazzar. So Nabonidus is the father, Belshazzar is the son, and they co-rule the kingdom. We're not sure why they do that. But, um, but what we know is that most likely the king married one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters in order to solidify his rule. Now, Belshazzar's death, which we're going to find here at the end of this book, also coincides with the fall of Babylon. And that happens 23 years after Nebuchadnezzar dies. Um, this also, again, coincides with the time when king the king of Persia, Cyrus, conquers Babylon with the Medes. And so as we get into the story here, it's believed that the, the, the king's father is out fighting the Medes and the Persian, and it's probably already surrendered to Cyrus. Um, so in this story, we see Belshazzar inside a fortified city where there is a siege of, a siege of Persians outside. Now, this is, this is kind of what is described of the city. The outer walls were 17 miles long, Uh, The walls are 22 feet thick, 90 feet high, um, and the outer walls also had guard towers of another 100 feet. Um, The city gates are made of bronze, and there was a system of inner and outer walls and moats that made the city very secure. It would have been a really, really hard thing for the Persians to be able to actually take over this city. Now, we don't know a lot about Belshazzar from what we get in the Bible, but there's a couple of extra biblical accounts that kind of give us an idea to, to his personality. Uh, so, number one, it is usually communicated that he was a very selfish and cruel um, king, he had a very hot temper, he was very arrogant. And there's a couple stories that are, that are brought up with some historians. One of them was that he was out hunting with a, with a nobleman, and they were out trying to shoot this game. The nobleman shot the game first, so the king ordered to have him killed. I was like, that was the correct response because you can't show up the king. The other one was um, he had, like many kings during that time, he had concubines. One of his concubines commented on another person's good looks, saying, hey, this guy, he's fairly handsome. Well, of course, Belchazar has him killed because you can't be more handsome to the king at that time. So this is, this is the type of person that he is. And even what we find out from this story is that while there is an army outside, people are dying, he is inside partying uh, and, and drinking and getting drunk and being gluttonous while everyone else is suffering. So that's, that's one of the first things that have changed. The second thing is a, a lot of things have changed thematically within Daniel. So, if if we kind of look at Daniel itself, it it kind of runs in this this pace where we see in chapter two, where we have this story of this king that has a dream that needs to be interpreted. From there, there should be some graphics, I think, that'll line up with this well, too. Um, From there, we go to a story of where there's persecution and a death sentence. And this is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going into the fiery furnace. Um, In chapter 4, what we saw, there was an arrogant king and a punishment, and that was Nebuchadnezzar, where he ended up uh, basically being punished to live like an animal and eat the grass of the ground um, until he ended up repenting and God restored him as king. Now, in chapter 5, we're starting to head down the other way. So we're seeing, again, an arrogant king and the punishment, but this time it's Belshazzar, and you can probably tell from the graphic what his outcome is. And then we'll move in, and we're going back down to persecution And a death sentence, this time with Daniel and the lion's den. And then finishing off in chapter 7 for this section, um, when it has a dream that needs interpretation, but this time it's Daniel's dream. So during all this time here, you know, a lot, again, a lot is changing thematically in the book of Daniel. But for Daniel himself, there's been a lot of turmoil. Now, he probably still held a high position uh, because he was still in the fortified city when all this happened, but it wasn't like it was before. He didn't have this high command like he had before um, in the book, so that leads us in here to the first couple of chap- uh, first couple verses. So, Daniel chapter five, verses one through four, King Belshazzar held a great feast for thousands of his nobles and drank wine in the presence. Under the influence of wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the kings and his nobles, wives and concubines, could drink from them. So they brought in the gold, vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and nobles, wives, concubines, drank from them, and they drank the wine, praised their gods, made of gold, bronze, silver, iron, wood, and stone. Now if you can just think for a second of everything that's going on here. The audacity of what Beltrassar is doing runs deep. And not just kind of in the aspects of what we're gonna be talking about in the spiritual realm of of what he's doing with the artifacts, but even kind of by some some cultural standards. You would not have wives and concubines at the same party. Now, I'm not gonna get into why that's the case, but you can imagine it's usually not a good idea. But this is what he was doing. Now, he also goes and he takes these vessels. And if you remember from from Daniel chapter one, when Jake was preaching, he talked about one of the reasons why you took the vessels from one temple and you put them in your own temple was a way to show that our gods conquered your gods. Our gods were greater than your gods. So we took them, we put them over here in in order to be able to show this dominance. Um, But if that wasn't bad enough, then he takes the ultimate sign of disrespect where now he takes those artifacts out And then he uses them for something common as drinking and getting drunk from it. He's basically saying these things are so worthless that they don't even belong in the presence of our own gods. And then also think, remember what's happening outside. Uh, Most likely his father is surrendered. Now, we don't know if he would have known that or not, but that's probably what would have happened by now. And his own people are being killed. There would definitely be reports of seeing the city surrounded. Now, as I'm reading this, I kind of have to wonder, was this just his own ignorance at this point of of having this party? Was he really just not understanding of what could happen? Um, Or was he just supremely arrogant, knowing, hey, hey, that this is a bad situation, but um, there's no way that's going to happen to me. Because, I mean, look who I am. I'm the king. I've got all this power. I'm going to be fine. I'm behind this city. So I I struggled with that a lot. And I struggled with the aspect of the, the ignorance and kind of the arrogance The reason I say that is, personally, one of the biggest things that I've learned over the past couple years is really the difference between faithfulness and ignorance. Let me explain why I say that. Um, I have always been in the past, or it's not always, but oftentimes in the past being described as somebody like, man, you are really, really faithful in that. There would be a hard situation. People would ask me how I'm doing. I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, doing great, doing great. Um, And a lot of times I I would be. Now, the reason I would be doing great, this is something that has been revealed to me, is because I chose not to basically think about those hardships or those hard trials. Um, I was very, very good, and I'm still pretty good at compartmentalizing um, my hard struggles and my fears and my anxieties and just pushing them away and not dealing with it. And so for me, that was this extreme aspect of, of faith was not going to worry about it. I'm going to be faithful, awesome. I'm going to put on a great face. Everything's going to be fine. But the problem was if I spent even just a little bit of time directed in that area, I would get consumed. I would get overwhelmed. Um, And then I would have to switch back. I'd have to like cut that off again. I can't do that. Got to go. And so what, what I've been learning and kind of like just through just the grace of God was that faith in God isn't necessarily blind. It's not I'm just kind of turning off my mind in order to trust him in a certain way, but I'm fully engaging hardships, fully engaging trials, and then reconciling those things with family and friends and community and scripture through prayer in order to bring myself to a realization that even in the midst of these hard things, God is still there. God is still faithful. And so as I kind of like looking through this aspect of ignorance and seeing what was going on, uh with Belshazzar, just wondering if, if he was just that disconnected or was he that arrogant. And I think we'll find that a little bit here as we go forward. So in chapter five, verses 5 uh, through 9, at that moment, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began riding on the plaster of the king's palace, uh, palace wall next to the lampstand. As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale, and his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself and his knees knocked together. The king shouted to bring in the mediums, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads the inscription and gives me this interpretation will be clothed in purple. They will have a gold chain around his neck and they'll be the third highest position in the kingdom. So all the king's men came in and none could read the inscription or make the interpretation known to him. Then King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face turned pale and his nobles were bewildered. So obviously this story had a tremendous impact on him. Now, if you're, if you're like me and you kind of have the brain of a 12-year-old, of I couldn't get past the soiled himself part. That's that's really kind of where I kept focusing on. So, they, they, I apologize again. This is this is kind of where my my brain goes. Now, this, this type of anxiety and fear is very similar to King Nebuchadnezzar when he was dealing with these dreams as well, too. Uh, and what we what we kind of surmise from that, this is probably a reoccurring dream that Nebuchadnezzar was having that brought so much anxiety on him. So we don't know if that's the same thing here. If, this, if he had dreams like this before, we know God was working in a lot through dreams through Daniel during this time. But what we do know is that for whatever happened here caused a serious impact. Now, What's also interesting is that the wording here where it talked about writing on the the palace wall, the plaster of the palace wall, typically kings, what they would do, they would have this giant wall, and inscripted on this wall would be just a list of all their victories, all the things that they conquered, um, all the things that essentially that would make them great. And this is how they kind of bragged and they showed themselves to people. And God's hand in this writing that's going on is essentially claiming this victory over all of that. He's writing and exhorting his power and covering up all of Belshazzar's, um, all of his exploits and victories. Not only that, but we kind of see a, a useless honor being presented, right? Because we know from the end of this that the kingdom's going to be gone. So it really didn't matter if anybody being first or second or third or even high up. Um, the, the kingdom of Babylon is going to be, is gonna be disappeared. And so right after this, the queen mother, again, who who we suspect is one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters, goes to Belshazzar and says, listen, you cannot look so pale anymore, okay? You've got to change your face around a little bit. There is this one person, his name is Daniel, and your father used him a lot in order to interpret these dreams. The gods have given him wisdom to do this, and so, of course, Beltrasar goes, he summons Daniel, and he gives him the same spiel. Hey, great, if you interpret this for me, I'm going to go ahead, I'm going I'm to put a, a purple robe on you, I'm going to put a gold chain around your neck, um, and it's, I'm going to give you this high place of honor, you'll be third in the kingdom. And let's, let's go ahead and look at um, Daniel's response here. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts and give your reward to someone else. However, I'll read the inscription for the king and make known the uh, the interpretation known to him. Your majesty, the Most High God, gave sovereignty, greatness, glory, and majesty to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. And because of the greatness he gave him, all the people's nations and languages were terrified and fearful of him. He killed anyone he wanted, and he kept alive anyone he wanted. He exalted anyone he wanted and humbled anyone he wanted. But when his heart was exalted and his spirit became ignorant... He was deposed from his royal throne, and the glory was taken from him. He was driven away from the people. His mind was like an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like cattle. His body was drenched with dew from the sky until he acknowledged the Most High God is ruler over all human kingdoms and sets anyone he wants over them. But you, his successor, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart. Even though you knew all this, instead you have exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels of his house are brought to you and you and your nobles, wives, and concubines drink wine from them. You praise the gods made of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand. But you have not glorified the God who holds your life and breath in his hands and who controls the whole course of your life. Therefore, He sent this hand and this writing that was inscribed. This is a much different interaction than Daniel had when he first met with King Nebuchadnezzar. So, if we look back in in chapter 2, verses 37 through 38, it's your majesty, you are the king of kings, the God of the heavens, who has given you sovereignty and power and strength and glory. Um, Wherever people live, or wild animals, or birds of the sky, he has handed them over to you. And made you ruler of them all. There was kind of this aspect of this, uh, uh, of just kind of being able to kind of lift him up a little bit and just pay him this 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 huge compliment. But when he's when he's with Belshazzar, he's is he not only complimenting Nebuchadnezzar, but he's actually using this moment to compare and contrast the difference between the two. And he says he knew all this. He probably didn't know of Daniel, but he knew of the stories. He probably heard stories of, of his of his mother talking about Nebuchadnezzar and the things that he went through and the change that he saw and all the different ways that his, his kingdom was impacted. It says, you have not acted humble and that this his very life and his current position were given to him by God. Then on top of that, just showing the outright mockery to God by intentionally desecrating the temple artifacts for his own pleasure. And so now we see Daniel interpret the writing. He says the writing that was inscribed was Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene means God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel means that you have been weighed on the balance and found deficient. Perez means that that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave an order. They clothed Daniel in purple, purple and put a gold chain around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he would be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belchisar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. So this happened quick. Right, so like if we if we look back at kind of like the punishment that kind of beset Nebuchadnezzar, it was it was a good time before actually, actually when the dream was interpreted by Daniel to where Nebuchadnezzar actually was punished and kind of being um, you kind of put on all fours and eating from the ground, but this one took place very quickly, and immediately the Medes and the Persians took over. Now I said a little bit earlier and I kind of talked about this kind of useless honor. But one thing that, that probably came out of it by making Daniel third in the kingdom, at this point, it probably gave Daniel a, a high standing with Darius. And so we, we do see that Daniel has a little bit more of kind of an impact with Darius in, in the net, next chapter as we go through that. Now, if you would have noticed, the, the title of my sermon is, Let Us Eat, Drink, and, and Be Merry. Um, now, this is said a couple times um, throughout the Bible. And so, like in Isaiah twenty-two thirteen, it's kind of the story of, of Isaiah just relaying God's judgment onto the people. And instead of repenting, what he's saying is that now you have this attitude of, you know, you only live once. We're just gonna, if we're going to die anyways, we might as well have fun doing it. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we're going to die. And then Paul kind of says, he repeats this as well. He was debating with some people in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15 about Jesus being resurrected. And he, he basically says that if Jesus hasn't resurrected, that none of this is true. Then why am I doing this? Why am I putting myself through all of this stuff? I might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow I'll die. But where, where I want to focus a little bit more time on is in Luke 12, 16 through 21, where it says, Jesus speaking, he says, he told them a parable, a rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? You no, know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to tear down the barns and I'm going to build bigger ones. I'm going to store all my grain and my goods there. And then I'll say to myself, hey, you've got many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Drink, eat, enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will there be? And that's how it is with one who stores up treasure for himself And is not rich toward God. So, I want to take this verse and everything that we read before, and I want to point out two main themes from that. So, number one, there is a theme of self exaltation. There is a danger of building ourselves up, of not being humble and acknowledging that everything that we have, from possessions to this very life, comes from God. And ultimately, We need to do it. what Paul says, and that's to offer ourselves up as living sacrifices to the one true God. And the second theme is, we see that nothing will thwart God's plan and design. Now, the title of the series, if you remember, is Daniel, God of the Exile. And the whole point, one of the things we talked about initially was like trying to figure out how can Daniel teach us to live in exile? These are people who are, are living in a country that wasn't their own. And the symbolism for us, for living in a world that is not our own, this is temporary for us. We're going to move into a, a different country, into a different kingdom. But how do we do that properly? What is our responsibility? What are things that we're supposed to be doing? And we reference Jeremiah 29. And if you remember in that chapter, he was telling the Babylonians in captivity, you need to put down roots, you need to marry. He says you even need to pray for the success of Babylon. And we saw that through the, the example of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, because of their obedience and because that they were actually pressing in, God gave them places of honor in this foreign kingdom. But in verse 10, he says, for this is what the Lord says, when 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and confirm my promise concerning to restore you to this place moves on a little bit more in Jeremiah 51. So if you really kind of want to see the God's uh, kind of judgment over Babylon, you know, feel free to kind of read that entire chapter. We're going to focus here on a couple verses. So in verse 51, it says, we are ashamed because we have heard insults and humiliation covers our faces because foreigners have entered the holy places of the Lord's temple. I will make her, Babylon, I'll make her princes and sages drunk along with her governors, warriors and officials. They will fall asleep forever and never wake up. This is the king's declaration. The Lord of armies is his name. And this is what the Lord of armies says. Babylon's thick walls will be totally demolished. Her high gates will be set ablaze. The peoples will have labored for nothing. Think about that. We went from chapter four. And as, as, as Frank mentioned, he was talking about just the, the vastness and the greatness of this Babylonian empire, how the hanging gardens of Babylon were one of the, the seven wonders of the world during that time. It was such an amazing place. It was the end of this incredible redemptive story that we saw this, this pagan king come to, to worship the true king to 27 years later, where the, where Babylon is being taken over after changing rule multiple times. However, Their story is not unlike the account of God's own chosen people, especially in the Old Testament. Many times they would would obey, and God would cause them to be prosperous. Then they would disobey, and then they would start worshiping idols. And then God would cause them to have destruction or to go into captivity. And this cycle would repeat over and over and over again. So what we see from all this is that This is telling us that we are all essentially the same, whether you grow up in church or whether you come from a a, a assorted background. um, We are all the same. We are equally distant from God. We are all created to serve something, but because of sin, we are prone to wonder from the true God and ultimately worship ourselves. And that's why I believe the most inclusive scripture in the Bible is Romans 3.23. And that's for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because we cannot break the cycle ourselves. We cannot pay for it. We cannot work for it. And we can never be good enough for it. It has to be given to us. And that's why we do communion. Jazz. Inside joke, sorry. Um. The reason why we do communion is that we acknowledge that this salvation and this grace that we were given through Jesus is not something that we could earn on our own. It's not something that we deserved. In fact, we deserve death. The wages of sin, of our sin, death, but Jesus paid that price on the cross. He died for our sins, and because of that, now we, we have access to his kingdom and relationship to the Father.